So when the Bible consistently says that Pharaoh's heart was heavy, you're supposed to envision the weighing of the heart on these scales with that Pharaoh's heart, you know, heavy and on the floor and not going before Osiris, whole society of Egypt crumbles. That's what's going on just by that one little mention. This is what your pastor didn't tell you today. I am on with Dr. Gary Rinsberg. We're going to be talking about Egyptian themes in the Exodus narrative and some scholarship that he's done on that. So uh, for people not familiar with you, can you give people a little bit about your background? Well, first of all, thanks, Zach, for having me on. It's uh, great to uh, reach uh, a large audience through the wonderful programs that you have um, been hosting, including many of my colleagues and uh, people whose name I may know and all such a range of topics. So it's a great pleasure to be here with you. Right. So uh, my background, well, my current position, let's start with that. I hold the uh, Blanche and Irving Laurie chair in Jewish history at Rutgers University in New Jersey, the State University of New Jersey. I hold the rank of distinguished professor and I'm mainly in the department of Jewish studies, but I also have affiliations in the history department and a few other departments as well. I've been teaching at the college level. It's hard for me to imagine that since 1980, it's 43 years. Oh, man. So three different, uh, three different university positions, Canisius College in Buffalo, Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. And now this is wow. my 19th year at uh, Rutgers. I did my <laughs> BA in uh, English at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and my MA and PhD in Hebrew studies at New York University. So that's the quick uh, CV right there for you. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Um, you talk in, in some of your um, writings and interviews, stuff like that, you've talked about baby Horus being hid in the bulrushes to be hidden by Seth and that how that parallels the Exodus story. Can you talk about that parallel? What do you think's going on there? Right. Okay. So a little background before we get to the specifics, which of course occurs at the very beginning of the book of Exodus there in chapter two. So let me point out that most biblical scholars like myself are trained in various cognate fields. Uh, Ugaritic is extremely important for biblical studies, um, Aramaic, uh, Akkadian, which is the language of uh, Babylonia, uh, Assyria, Babylonia, etc. Uh, we're all trained in all of these things. Fewer biblical studies scholars are trained in ancient Egyptian. I am one of the few or small number of people who works both in biblical studies and Egyptology able to read hieroglyphics, read the uh, literary texts, and so on. And so over the course of my career, I have spent uh, a lot of time integrating the two, the world of ancient Egypt and the world of, of the Bible, uh, and ancient Israel and its great literary product, uh, the Bible. Uh, I wasn't the first to point these out, I don't think, but as I started reading more and more in, in Egyptian texts, I saw all sorts of themes that you know, resonate uh, in the book of Exodus, and you've mentioned one of them very, very quickly. So one of the uh, foundational stories of ancient Egypt goes as follows. And we have uh, references to this narrative that is pieced together from a variety of texts going back to the Old Kingdom and into the New Kingdom and Late Period. 
So uh, you have uh, the two brothers of Osiris and Seth. Uh, Seth is associated with uh, chaos and disorder and evil, if you will. And Osiris is a good god. Osiris is married to Isis. Uh, Seth, it's the great conflict between brothers and conflict between good and evil and so on. Seth uh, kills his brother Osiris, which explains why Osiris becomes the god of the afterlife. Remember, the ancient Egyptians believed in an afterlife. Only people in the ancient world who did that, who believed in such, the concept of a heaven and so on is later Judaism and later Christianity. But in the most ancient Near Eastern period, um, most people believed in a um, uh, did not believe in an afterlife as you and I would recognize it, except for the Egyptians, and which is why they invented mummies, and elaborate tombs, and so on. So Osiris dies and becomes the uh, god of the uh, of the afterlife. Unbeknownst to Seth, before Osiris was killed, he impregnated his wife Isis, the goddess of beauty and wisdom, and Isis gives birth uh, to Horus, the son of Isis and Osiris. Horus is the falcon god. Those of you who've gone to Egyptian collections and museums, you see a lot of uh, falcon statuary, and he is the god of kingship. So whoever is the pharaoh on the throne is essentially the living embodiment of Horus. And whatever happens to Horus in the mythological texts is essentially a echo of the pharaoh's life. Okay. Once Seth finds out that Osiris's son uh, hope everybody's following this. Once Seth finds out that Osiris's son Horus, the baby, has been born, he goes on a rampage to go find him and kill him as well. His mother Isis, this is where it gets so interesting, uh, finds a bunch of reeds and papyrus and forms a papyrus basket uh, uh, and floats it on the Nile in the Delta and hides him amongst the thicket reeds of the Delta. Now, if you think about this, this is exactly, of course, what's happening in Exodus chapter 2, where Moses's mother, we don't have her name at that point. We do learn her name later on in chapter 6. Moses's mother in Hebrew, Yocheved, anglicized as Jochebed, hides him in the little basket, the baby in the bulrushes theme. And that is simply an echo of the ancient Egyptian myth that I've just described for you. But it gets more interesting than that, and there's greater depth to it than that. Look at what happens. In the biblical story, Pharaoh is the one who seeks the death of all the Israelite male children, and in theory, focusing on Moses as one of those. And so Pharaoh uh, actually turns into Seth. Right? The biblical story subverts the Egyptian myth. Pharaoh, who's usually Horus, now becomes Seth, the wicked one who seeks the death of the baby. And Moses becomes Horus, which means by definition that Moses now becomes the equal to Pharaoh. This is all underlying the biblical story. And at the heart of all this is my belief that the ancient Israelites would have known enough about Egyptian culture and religion and literature to understand what's going on in these stories. And then let's take this one step further. Throughout the Bible, all babies are born, 
all babies are nursed by their mothers, not just throughout the Bible, throughout the ancient world, unless you have a wet nurse. And, uh, but nothing is made of it. I mean, rarely, I mean, yes, we have mentioned Isaac was weaned by Sarah and so on, but we really don't have stories of, you know, Rebecca nursing Jacob and Esau or Rachel nursing Joseph and Benjamin and so on and so forth. But the nursing of Moses is important. Why? Because the other main theme from Egyptian uh, culture is Isis suckling her baby child Horus. And there are all sorts of statuettes, not very large. You see them in Egyptian collections everywhere. Here in the New York area, you can see them at the New York, uh, at the Metropolitan Museum, but you can see them at the University of Pennsylvania Museum, the Walters uh, Art Museum in, in uh, Baltimore, and on and on it goes. Uh, obviously, the British Museum and so on in Europe. Uh, and the theme of Isis nursing her son Horus therefore has to reverberate in the biblical story with Moses' mother nursing the baby Moses. Now, of course, how that happens is because sister not named in chapter two, but of course we know her to be Miriam, uh, arranges for it. All of that is happening there in Exodus chapter two. It's layers upon layers. It looks to us like a beautiful, simple story, which of course you can read it in such fashion. But once you realize how much depth and layers are there in the background of ancient Egyptian material, you get a fuller and deeper understanding of what the uh, authors of ancient Israel were doing, and that's just 10 verses there at the beginning of Exodus chapter 2. Okay. If you go to Exodus chapter 34, there's a very famous passage. We can actually can talk about it in the context of European culture generally, because it brings us to St. Jerome and the Vulgate and eventually Michelangelo and uh, others. Uh, Exodus 34, the Hebrew expression there is, so it's always good to share a little Hebrew with the audience, right? It's a three-word expression in Hebrew, karan uh, or panav. Literally, the skin of his face was, and then there's this verb, karan, which is based on the Hebrew noun keren, which means uh, horn. So I translate this as the skin of his face was horned. Now, most modern English translations uh, translate this as the skin of his face was radiant or something like that. That's because not in biblical Hebrew, but in post-biblical Hebrew, the same verb could be used for the sun's rays. And the noun could also be used for the sun's rays. If you think about the sun's rays, just think about the way we portray the sun, even our own, you know, little sketching. Uh, it has, you know, horns coming out of it, you know, little triangular things coming out of the, uh, uh, the round sun and that evokes the shape of an animal horn, right? So cow's horn in particular. So the Hebrew word can mean either ray, or basically means horn, that's its basic meaning of an animal, but it can also, it comes to mean the rays of the sun. And the verb means either to be horned or in post-biblical Hebrew develops the understanding, the meaning of to, uh, to be radiant. Okay, that's a lot of background. I think it has to do with horns. So the skin of Moses' face was horned. And if you know the story there in Exodus 34, he's coming down from Mount Sinai and the people see him and so on and so forth. Um, Saint Jerome, when he translates the Bible into Latin in the fourth century CE, 
the text which we call the Vulgate, which becomes the Bible of Western Christianity uh, up until the Protestant Reformation. And it's the Bible of the, of the Roman Catholic Church and remains the Bible of the Catholic Church in the 20th century and to, uh, to a great extent as well. St. Jerome translates it as um, the skin of um, his face was horned. Um, now, Jerome just had a fine sense of the Hebrew language. He was an expert Hebraist. If you don't know the background of St. Jerome, by the way, he obviously a prominent member of the Roman Catholic Church in the fourth century who mastered Greek and Hebrew in addition to the Latin. So he was able to translate the entire Bible single-handedly, and he had to learn a little bit of Aramaic as well because there are bits and pieces of Aramaic in the Bible, especially in Daniel and in Ezra. So he masters Hebrew and Greek, and he translates the entire Hebrew Bible into Latin and the entire New Testament from Greek into Latin. It's a remarkable achievement of a certain single individual in the fourth century. And the Latin term is Vulgata, or in English, the Vulgate. It's related to our word vulgar in the sense that it's for the people. It's, it's to bring the Bible to the people in the language that they would understand, which was Latin in the in, 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 you know, Roman Empire, especially in the West. Hmm. Um, and I think Jerome got it right. Now, if you fast forward more than a thousand years past Jerome, uh, uh, Michelangelo uh, creates uh, the tomb in Rome for uh, Pope Julius. And uh, the prominent figure there in the tomb is uh, Moses. And he's got horns coming out of his, not on his face, but coming out of his, near his hairline. Um, that's because Michelangelo, like everybody else in 16th century Italy, was reading the Bible in Latin. They were reading St. Jerome's translation. They read it, and his mm. face was horned. And so they put the horns on, he puts the horns on Moses. He's not the only um, Renaissance artist who does so. There are others who are doing this as well. His is the most famous because huh. the, the church in Rome is a place still visited uh, by thousands, tens of thousands of people. Yeah. Uh, each year. In fact, my wife and I were there um, just in March of this year. So, and we went to the church again to have a look at the great um, Michelangelo art piece. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the, the background for this. Now, that's, that's why it's so well known in you know, Western culture because of Michelangelo's depiction of Moses, which is based on St. Jerome, which I think is based on the biblical text. Now let's bring the Egyptian material into this. Okay. Uh, at the Luxor Temple, uh, uh, anyone who's been, uh, who's listening, who's been to, to uh, Egypt will have visited Luxor. There are two temples in Luxor in the south of Egypt, the larger of the two by far. It's the largest temple complex in the ancient world. It's the Temple of Karnak. But there's also a smaller temple there, which we call the Luxor Temple. And in the Luxor Temple, on the uh, temple walls, the Egyptians have reliefs on all the walls of their temples, wherever you go. And on the walls, there are pictures of two pharaohs, um, and Amenhotep III and Ramses II. And in both cases, they have ram's horns on their cheeks, sort of wrapping around their ears. And you can see the ram's horns here. Um, so uh, these were published by a scholar named Lanny Bell, late, late Lanny Bell of the um, University of Chicago. And he discusses them and so on. He did not connect it to the biblical story. Uh, I did in an article I wrote called Moses as Equal to Pharaoh. 
Uh, it's available at my website if anybody wants to access it, along with a second article relevant to our discussion called Moses the Magician. And um, what I think is going on in Exodus 34, Moses's life begins in Exodus 2 with his becoming the equal to Pharaoh as he's now the baby in the bulrushes. And when you get to this near the end of his life, obviously we have all of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy still to come. But when you get to Exodus 34, you have one last reminder of Moses as the equal to Pharaoh. Horns were symbols of power in the ancient world. We see this in artwork, we see this in literature, and that's because the bull and the water buffalo and the males of these species, even the ram, the, the, you know, the males of these species have such prominent horns that it's an indication of their power and strength. So the Bible says the skin of Moses's face was horned. It's evoking an Egyptian artistic motif to remind us that you Egyptians can think whatever you want about your Pharaoh, but he's not divine and he's just a king and he's just a human. And uh, our Moses is every much his equal because he has been imbued with the power by the single God, the God of Israel. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, especially with that parallel world where, you know, Pharaoh is seen as the god, um, especially empowered by, you know, the supposed Egyptian gods. So that's really fascinating. Um, do you actually think the writer of uh, Exodus is really thinking of Moses as literally having horns on his face? Or is that just some poetic words yeah that's a good question zach that i don't know that we can answer right i mean how much can we put ourselves in the mindset of the writer i think the answer would probably be yes i don't think it's just a metaphor uh, you know i probably think that that's the way he's portraying him i think so i think if you read exodus 34 that's pretty clear yeah, yeah. well michael angelo thought uh, he was confident that we could answer that one so that's something <laughs> um yeah so uh, later, you, um, in other you know, speeches you've given, you, you argued that Moses throws down his stick, which turns into an animal and eats up all the other animals. You argue that the animal is a crocodile. Can you explain your reasoning for that? Yeah, well, <clears throat> um, let's go back to Exodus chapter 4. Um, three, Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Almost everybody listening will know the story. Uh, Moses is out shepherding his father-in-law's flock. And he sees the burning bush and first time that God reveals himself to Moses. And Moses has all sorts of objections as to why he shouldn't be the leader of the people of Israel. Um, and one of them is uh, they're not going to believe me. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, God empowers Moses with the ability to take his staff. Every shepherd carries the staff and um, uh, to turn it into a snake. And when you read Exodus chapter four, it's the beginning of chapter four, the word is snake, nachash. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he then goes back to Egypt. He's reunited with his brother Aaron and so on. And the two of them now go before Pharaoh in Exodus chapter seven. The language there is somewhat goes back and forth because even though it's Moses' staff, it's actually Aaron's staff there in chapter seven. But that point aside, uh, Aaron casts it on the ground, and uh, instead of it becoming a nachash, a snake, it becomes a tanin. And so biblical scholars who set about to translate the Bible have all sorts of questions. What does the word tanin mean? 
you know, so they translated it serpent or something like that, right? Because it's got to be something like a snake. Well, I don't even know if serpent is a zoological term. Uh, you know, it's some sort of reptile thing. Um, so uh, be that as it may, I think it actually means crocodile. And I say that because in the book of Ezekiel, um, the Pharaoh, uh, Ezekiel has these, it's much, much later, Ezekiel has these oracles directed at the foreign nations, one of which includes, one of which is Egypt. And in there, he sort of mocks the Pharaoh and he refers to him as a tanin. And the description is that this is an animal that's in the Nile and so on and so forth. And so I think it has to mean crocodile there. Um, that's how you say crocodile in, in Hebrew. And then you can go into all sorts of discussion about matching up the names of animals and plants and gemstones and so on with what they really might be. But I think tanin definitely means crocodile. I have further, um, I can rely further on an Egyptian story in which an Egyptian priest um, doesn't have a staff in his hand, but an Egyptian priest, it's called a wax crocodile story. Uh, he, it's said in the Old Kingdom, but the text itself comes from the Middle Kingdom. Um, uh, creates a wax crocodile uh, seven fingers long. So if you can picture one, two, three, four, seven finger long crocodile. And when it's thrown onto the ground, it turns into a real crocodile of seven cubits long, which would be about 10 to 11 feet. So they believed that their priests could turn inanimate objects into animate objects, in this case, a crocodile. And then when they touched it, it turned back into the inanimate object. Now, of course, Moses does that in chapter four with the snake. And here in chapter seven, Aaron's staff becomes the crocodile. And now I say this with a smile. The proof that the Egyptian priests could do this is actually right there in chapter seven because they're not impressed with Aaron's um, uh, trick, we'll call it for the moment. Uh, they cast their staffs uh, on the ground and they also become crocodiles, living crocodiles, taninim, they become crocodiles. Now Aaron's crocodile eats their crocodiles and so on, but they're able to do this. These are the Egyptian magicians or priests or whatever we want to call them there. So yeah, I think Moses and Aaron's ability there is to is, is evoking this idea of turning the inanimate object, in this case a staff, into the, uh, into the living crocodile. It, it is an echo again of this Egyptian story of an Egyptian uh, magician priest who's able uh, to, to do the same. Uh, let me add something to uh, uh, to that. Uh, and, and by the way, I think that there is a relationship between chapter four and chapter seven as follows. Uh, in chapter four, it becomes a snake because where is Moses? He's in Mount Sinai. He's in the middle of a vast desert. And you know what, what kind of animal life lives out there and you have snakes in the desert and so on. So that will make sense. When he goes in chapter seven to the Pharaoh's palace, where is that? It's on the banks of the Nile. You're now in a sort of a different you know, topography, geography, and therefore it can become a crocodile because you're right there on the banks of the Nile. And it's also a little bit of an upgrade, right? I mean, okay, a snake, fine, but a crocodile, that's really remarkable. So I call that an upgrade from the chapter four snake in the desert to chapter seven crocodile along the banks of the Nile. Hmm. Okay. So 
just so we're on the same page here, so do you think that the crocodile went and ate other crocodiles or the crocodile ate snakes? No, no, no. Well, first of all, what's really strange there in chapter seven, it doesn't say, I just said it, but it's wrong. It doesn't say that Aaron or Moses' crocodile ate their crocodiles. It actually says that Moses and Aaron's staff ate their staffs. Now, that's really odd because, you know, sticks and staffs and so on made out of wood can't really eat, but that's what the text says, which is something I've always pondered and I have no good explanation. <laughs> if it said the crocodile ate their crocodiles, okay, fine. That's that's that, that's the world of zoology, right? Animals eat, but that's a very strange comment. That I've always pondered and have nothing, no no great wisdom has yet come to me after forty plus years of teaching. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, yeah. So, could you talk about the Elohim uh, mentioned in this passage here? Right. Okay. Elohim is the basic Hebrew word for God. Okay. Um, for the listeners who may not know Hebrew. Uh, the Bible uses a variety of terms for God, but the two which dominate 95, 98% of the time, it's either the word Elohim, which is the generic word for God. Uh, all Semitic languages have a similar word. You hear the same sounds in the Arabic word Allah, for example. And uh, the word Yahweh, which is the specific name of the God of Israel. And that, of course, is only the God of Israel. Elohim is a generic term. Yahweh is the proper name of the of the God of Israel. And they're used throughout the Bible and, you know, somewhat uh, interchangeably. Um, and um, in this, so that's just sort of background. And when you read the Bible in English, by the way, if you come across the word God, it's Elohim. If you come across the word Lord, frequently in English translations, all caps, uh, Lord is the word, is the way we render Yahweh. Um, that's background. In in Exodus chapter four, another one of Moses' objections is, I'm not a good speaker. You want me to go and talk to Pharaoh, and I don't, I'm not a good orator. And that's when God says, um, your brother Aaron is en route to meet you. He is a good speaker. And uh, he says to um, uh, Moses, you will be an Elohim unto um, Aaron. And Aaron will serve as your prophet or your spokesperson. That's fascinating. Now in chapter seven, verse one, when they go before Pharaoh, this is before they do the crocodile thing, um, the text again says, God says to Moses, I have set you as an Elohim unto Pharaoh. And again, Moses will be your prophet or your spokesperson. So what's going on here? Now in the, hist in the, in the, in the um, hierarchy of ancient Israelite religion, and perhaps in all religions of the ancient world, um, the highest level that a human being can achieve is prophet. And the second highest level is priest. Now, in the Bible, Moses, of course, is the prophet par excellence, and Aaron is the priest par excellence, the first high priest. Mm -hmm. And all of his descendants serve as the high priest in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. So what's happened here is Moses has been um, elevated to deity, which is beyond any human level. And Aaron has gone from priest to prophet. They have received temporary promotions, as it were. Hmm. Now, why is this necessary? Uh, in the ancient world, the kings were considered human 
although they were the agents of the gods. So the king of Babylon and the king of any Canaanite city-state. And if you go to Homer, you know, Agamemnon or whoever it is, they're, they're, they're human people uh, who serve as king. In ancient Egypt, the king was considered divine. Remember what I said at the outset. Pharaoh was the living embodiment of Horus, and Horus is the god of kingship, and they basically become one and the same. We have statuary, again, you can see this in museums, of a particular Pharaoh, and you get the wings of Horus, the wings of the falcon, sort of coming over his shoulders and, and wrapping him. They just meld into a single entity. So because the Pharaoh is considered divine in Egyptian culture, unlike any other ancient Near Eastern culture, if Moses is going to appear before Pharaoh, he cannot enter into any discussions and negotiations and so on, what I like to call a summit conference, uh, at a lesser level, profit, quite high in the human chain, but still just profit. So God elevates him to the level of Elohim. And again, English Bible translations don't quite know what to do with this passage, mm -hmm. but uh, it really should be rendered literally. I have made, I have set you, or I have made you as a God unto Pharaoh, mm -hmm. and Aaron, your brother, will become your prophet or your spokesperson. And again, that's all part of the Egyptian background of the story. The ancient Israelite reader would have known that the Pharaoh was considered divine, that he was a deity, and that this is a way of having our um, individual leader becoming become a deity as well. Mind you, this goes against everything that the Bible teaches us. Right? God is God, and humans cannot achieve the divine. Of course, I'm talking now about the Hebrew Bible, because once you reach the New Testament, you have something different. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, that theology of ancient Israel is set aside for the literary needs of the moment or for the exigencies of the moment. By the way, we never get a reduction, you know, uh, it's just, it never says at the end of the Exodus account, well, okay, you've done your job. Now you're a prophet again, and Moses is a, and Aaron is a priest again. I mean, it happens, but there's no explicit statement uh, like that. So that's why I call it a temporary promotion for the moment. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. What about the, the plagues of Egypt? Um, well, specifically, you know, the, the Nile during the blood, all that other, the locusts, all that right. kind of stuff. How does that parallel Egyptian text? Well, some of these are known uh, sort of natural or naturalistic things that happen uh, to Egypt. If we just take the ninth plague of darkness for a moment, Egypt is mm -hmm. susceptible to severe sandstorms. And by the way, if you read um, the ninth plague in the book of Exodus, it says you could feel it and it lasted for three days. You, know, you could feel it in the sense that the sand was you know, blowing through the air and it can't be a solar eclipse or anything like that because it, it says it lasted for three days. So um, you do have some reality to, you know, to some of these plagues. That said, the book of Exodus is not a science treatise. It's not giving us scientific explanations. It's obviously working at the literary theological level or the nexus between literature and theology so in many cases these plagues are attacks on the egyptian gods uh and if you just start from the very beginning um the nile uh is still unclear egyptologists are still not clear whether 
the Nile is seen as its deity or not, but there is a deity associated with the Nile. And so when the Nile turns blood, um, you know, that's an attack on this freshwater deity or the freshwater source of all life. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, the second plague is the frogs. Uh, Heket is the frog goddess who's associated with the goddess of, with, associated with life. She's the goddess of life. So what happens is, you know, all the, uh, at Pharaoh's request, all the frogs die. So now you have piles and piles of frogs, which would be piles and piles of dead frog carcasses, which in mm -hmm. theory are supposed to be the goddess of life. And so you, have, you see that. And you can just, you know, go on with this um, plague number five. Various deities are associated with cattle. Uh, Hathor, female goddess, is the cow. Um, various deities associated with the bull, the male of the cattle species, and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think that these are attacks on the Egyptian gods. And in fact, by the way, the Bible even says that um, there's a reference in chapter 12 to, uh, to you know, the, the, the wonders that I have sent, God speaking, the wonders that I have sent against all the gods of Egypt, right? So we actually have a statement such as that, and we can work this out. Um, we have statements in Egyptian texts about the, the water turning to blood. Mm -hmm. So that's a theme or a meme out of Egyptian literature. It's usually a sign of decay in society, a, a time of, of, of you know, chaos in the society without a single pharaoh ruling peacefully over the land. Uh, we have references to darkness uh, as well in Egyptian texts. Uh, brought on by magicians who were able, who they thought were able to do such things. So we do have these references in Egyptian texts. And again, the Bible at every turn is evoking these Egyptian themes. Uh, this is probably a good place to um, point out, uh, a good place to observe that. I don't think for a moment that any ancient Israelite was able to read an Egyptian text, right? I mean, this was, this was you know, not something one could do. You had to be a trained scribe even the average ancient egyptian couldn't read an egyptian text you had to they could all listen to the stories it was their native language mm -hmm. i don't think ancient israel you know went up to some papyrus scroll and read it or some tomb or palace a temple wall rather and read it yeah, it's yeah. just part of living in a either they lived in egypt or the egyptians ruled over the land of canaan and the greater cultures the more dominant cultures and no one was more dominant than egypt will always influence the lesser cultures. You know, I mean, if I can use modern analogies, you know, mm -hmm. the U.S. is one of the dominant cultures in the 20th and 21st centuries. You know, we send our Disney movies around the world and now everybody knows the whole Disney canon, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we create baseball and basketball and now they play baseball in, you know, in Latin America and Japan and they play basketball in Italy and in Serbia and so on. So, you know, we have these cultural influences it doesn't mean that, you know, people who are evoking or enjoying these cultural or athletic events are, you know, therefore able to read our English text or anything like that. I hope that works as a modern analogy. So just a part of being a citizen of the world, you know that baseball is American, right? Mm -hmm. um, and being a citizen of the ancient world, you knew the divine pharaoh uh, was, uh, the divine king was a theme from Egypt, and all, along with all the other things I've been pointing out. Okay, what about the the Pharaoh's heart being heavy? You talked about, you know, you have the Hebrew word kaveh. Right. There's also different verbs there. Could you talk about that whole... Yeah, so in the, um, 
in the plague's narrative, again, the people listening will know the story well enough. And, you know, each time there's a plague, it says, you know, Pharaoh's heart was heavy, meaning he wouldn't send the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, there are three different Hebrew verbs used. One of them is to be heavy. Um, one of them is to be strong. One of them is to be hard. And basically, they all mean something like, you know, obstinate or something like that, right? I mean, he just refused to send them away. But the commonest one there is the word, the verb which you just mentioned, kaved, which means heavy. Now, another one of the core stories of Egyptian religion. In the New Kingdom, which is when the biblical story is taking place, uh, 13th, 12th centuries BCE, uh, we have a classic Egyptian text called the Book of the Dead, long papyrus scrolls with all of these rituals that the deceased must undergo to make it into the next world um, and uh, to, to be joined with Osiris in the afterlife. And the most famous of them is called the weighing of the heart. And so you actually have a portrayal in it's, it's written out in text, but then you also have vignettes drawn by the scribe and you see uh, the god Anubis weighing the heart of the deceased on a scale. And on the one scale, uh, on the one plate of the scale, he places the heart. And on the other plate of the scale, you can all picture scales, there's a feather. The feather is very light. And if they balance, and of course they always do, your heart is light. Uh, and that means your, your heart is true. It's called the feather of truth, by the way. Ma'at, the feather of truth. And it balances out and you go off and you make it into the, and then there's a picture of Horus escorting you before Osiris. Beautiful. Okay. Um, and in the, um, uh, in the same scene, there is this creature whom we call the devourer. He's sort of part swine, part hippopotamus, part crocodile. He's got like all these different features of him and with his mouth open. And if the heart were to fall to the ground, he's rare gobble it up. Of course, it never does because every one of these individuals has a heart of truth balanced against the feather of truth. What were to happen if your heart was heavy? The scales would tip and your heart would, you know, you wouldn't make it into the next world and your heart would fall to the ground and would be devoured by the devourer. So when the Bible consistently says that Pharaoh's heart was heavy, you're supposed to envision the weighing of the heart on these scales. What were to happen is that Pharaoh's heart would be not balanced against the feather of truth. Pharaoh would not make it into the next world. Pharaoh is the guarantor of peace and prosperity and serenity and success in ancient Egypt. That's not going to happen. With it, Pharaoh's heart, you know, heavy and on the floor and not going before Osiris, uh, the whole society of Egypt crumbles. That's what's going on just by that one little mention, which I think occurs six times, if I recall, in the text uh, over and over again in chapter yeah. seven, eight, nine, etc. Uh, it's, it's, again, one of these little fascinating bits of, of Egyptian culture, which is resonating in the biblical text. But that's a great example of how uh, we can read extra biblical text to understand the Bible more and understand what the... And, and, and that's the main uh, goal of what we do when we do biblical studies. And we, 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 we're fortunate. Let me point out for 
almost 2,000 years, um, readers of the Bible couldn't do this, right? If you were a Jewish or Christian reader, I don't know, in the 8th century or the 10th century, in the Middle Ages, the 12th century, the 15th century, yeah. you didn't have access to ancient Egypt, ancient Babylonia, uh, etc. I mean, you had classical Greek writers like Herodotus discussing them and so on, but only in the 19th and 20th and now 21st century do we have access. We can actually go back in time and understand. Um, we've, we've uncovered the world of antiquity through archaeology and the decipherment of hieroglyphic script and so on, that a whole world comes to life. And now we see that world informing the biblical text and we can actually see the genius of these biblical writers to do what they're doing. In this case, we're talking about Egypt, but it would be equally true. We were talking about the flood story, which has parallels to the Babylonian flood tradition and so on. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, very fascinating. Okay, so let's talk about, well, while we're on the topic of water, uh, what about the, the splitting of the Red Sea? Um, yeah, I mean, You've compared that to yeah. Egyptian narrative. Um, you know, obviously there's some people that want to say that it's, you know, kind of like splitting the sea monster kind of idea. Um, what do you think about all that? Right. So I don't think it has to do with the sea monster, um, which you do find that in other. First of all, that evokes a Babylonian myth, um, Marduk and Tiamat, part of the Babylonian creation story. There's some evocations of that in Canaanite literature from Ugarit, and there's some echoes of it in the Bible as mm -hmm. well. Uh, Psalm 74 and a few other mm -hmm. places. But I think the the splitting of the sea in Exodus 14, the prose version in Exodus 15, the poetic version goes as follows. Um, so we have an Egyptian story. Again, they love to tell these stories about these magician priests. It's um, the um, story goes as follows. The royal family is out on a lake on their Boats, we usually translate it as yachts. Not that I want you to think of these people having yachts, but that's, you know, fancier than a boat. And um, the pendant of the princess falls into the lake. And everybody's upset. The princess is upset, so everybody's going to be upset. And the chief elector priest or magician priest says to her, don't worry, I'll get you a new one just like it. And she says, no, I want my own special pendant you know this is the prerogative of a princess so what does he do the magician priest separates the waters he finds the pendant lying below on dry ground gives it back to the princess and then brings the water back again and the boating party can continue with great uh, happiness um, we have another egyptian text where a magician um, is able to split the waters as well. I won't go into all the details. Okay. So what happens? The Israelites are trapped. They've got the sea in front of them, the Sea of Reeds in front of them. They got the Egyptian army behind them, pursuing them. And it's at this point where Moses almost like saves his greatest act for the end. Um, it's after the 10 plagues, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet until you see what I'm going to do now. And he splits the sea. The Israelites go through on dry land. The Egyptians follow and of course Moses brings the waters back together again and the and all empowered by God and the um, the I'll come back to that point and the um, the Egyptians drown it's as if the biblical story 
teller were saying the following. Okay, okay, Egyptians, you think that your magicians can separate the waters and create dry land and then bring the waters back again. Fine. Um, if you believe that, we'll arrange it for you, <laughs> right? But you will meet your death that way. And that's how the Egyptian army drowns. And of course, the Israelites safely on the other side of the Sea of Reeds uh, pursue the next chapter, which is, of course, the wandering through uh, the Sinai Desert. So even that story works so well with the Egyptian literary or literary uh, religious text. We didn't mention this before, so let's go back a moment. Um, whenever the Egyptian priests do something in these stories, whether it's the guy who turns the inanimate crocodile into the living crocodile, uh, or the priest who separates the waters and finds the pendant, they always say their words of magic. Now, we don't get to hear the words of magic, but the text says the magician priest said his words of magic and then such and such happened. The crocodile became alive and the water split and so on. You actually see that in the biblical text. When the Egyptian magicians um, also turn their staffs into crocodiles in chapter 7, it said they said their words of magic. When they replicate, duplicate the first and second plagues, you'll remember the Egyptian magicians are also able to turn the water into blood and create frogs and so on. Um, it says they said their say of magic. It uses this relatively rare Hebrew term. It means like spells or charms or something like that. Lahatehem, their, their spells, their charms. Um, when Moses or when Moses and Aaron do this, it is never magic. There is no magic in Israel. Uh, the other peoples of the ancient world believed that they could circumvent the divine by these magical praxis, and the Israelites have no magic whatsoever. Uh, you are, according to the standard laws of the Torah, uh, there is you know, not supposed to have, you see this especially in uh, Deuteronomy, but elsewhere, you're not supposed to have witches and wizards and magicians and snake charmers and cloud readers and all kinds of people who engage in such different kinds of acts. So when Moses does this, he doesn't have to say any words of magic. He does it simply because he's been empowered to do so by God. And that is never stated in the biblical text, by the way. There's never a statement like I just said. Oh, by the way, dear reader, pay attention. These Egyptian uh, men always have to use their words of magic, not so with Moses or Moses and Aaron. They just do it because the God of Israel has empowered them to do so. You won't get a comment like that. You, as a reader, cannot just sit back and be a passive reader. You have to be actively engaged in the reading process throughout, and you will pick up on all the things that we are talking about right now. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so... Um... Uh, yeah, so let's talk about a little shift in subject here. Um, you know, we've talked about a lot of parallels here, a lot of similar themes. Um, you know, so some people are going to th say that, like, you know, you know, obviously, like, this is in an Egyptian context, but, um, like, the Horus narrative, um, like, that some people might think that that lends itself that, you know, like, maybe this story is made up or something like that. Um what is your view of what the writer of Exodus is doing 
and how what effect right okay so this brings us to this is a great question zach and it brings us to a whole very important topic um <laughs> the I mean, this will be true of genesis exodus but we'll fo we're focusing on exodus right these are not um you know historical accounts like the way we study history in middle school high school college and so on this is not a journalistic report that we read in the newspaper or online or the evening news uh, this is literature and my view of biblical literature is as follows it is absolutely remarkable what these ancient israelite uh, literati created it is a story and the story is written in prose and the story is composed or comprised rather of two elements history plus epic when I teach this, I actually write it on the board in a mathematical formula. I write out the words, biblical narrative equals history plus epic. So they get, students get a visual of this. Now to that, there's also a theological overlay, but leave that aside just for the moment. It's an epic storytelling. Um, if you had pure historical narrative, and of course, there are great history writers who can really bring history alive, but it was with pure historical narrative, just the facts, it can be a pretty dry account. If it were an epic story, um, it becomes fantastical at times, almost unbelievable. So the combination of the two, the history and the epic, is what really makes it so engaging. It keeps the reader present. Now, the historian in me, uh, so I believe there is a historical kernel to the biblical account. Uh, the historian in me would like to, you know, picture maybe the onion um, metaphor, uh, you know, remove the outer layers of the epic overlay to re reveal the historical kernel. Um, that's what the historian in me wants to do. But by doing that, we would lose the beauty of the biblical narrative. So do I believe that the Israelites were in Egypt? Yes. It's a whole other issue on the historical aspects of it. I've, I've written on that as well. And all of my publications, almost without exception, are available on my website. So uh, please feel free to share my publications page with um, everyone. Um, and they can download, uh, you can search for Moses and Egypt and whatever and download these things uh, in PDF format and read them. So the, the um, uh, Israelites were in Egypt. We know that the Egyptians opened their border to Semitic tribes, especially in times of famine. They would move there with their flocks, exactly what you have at the end of the book of Genesis. We have evidence for that. Uh, these texts don't mention Israel, but we, we know they're coming from the general region. Um, we know that Egypt employed foreign labor for their building projects. We have references to that, exactly like you have in Exodus chapter 1. Um, and we know that, you know, eventually Semitic people would leave Egypt as well. Now, do I think that 600,000 adult males left Egypt on a single day at a single moment, which would imply a population of about 2 million people, and they trekked across the Sinai all at one big, happy group? No, those are the epic elements of our story. Um, but there's a historical kernel there. And all, everything we have been talking about the birth narrative, the plagues narrative, uh, the splitting of the sea, um, all of those fall into that epic uh, storytelling. 
uh, style overlaying the history. By the way, when you get to the book of Kings, if you want to read about any reign of the king of Israel, the king of Judah, it's pretty, it's very historical. It gives you the number of years he reigned, uh, the, sometimes the name of his uh, members of court and royal family and so on. But it's a pretty dry narrative. How many people open up the Book of Kings and say, oh, I'm going to be the Book of Kings right now? Uh, with the arrival of the monarchy, the storytelling style shifted. We still have these engaging narratives up until the time of King David, a little bit with King Solomon. But after that, once you get to Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the kings of Israel and kings of Judah, you really do have relatively dry narrative, with the exception of the Elisha, Elijah and Elisha stories. Uh, which focus on these prophetic figures. You know, if I said to you, you want to know something about the reign of King Manasseh, you can go look it up and it's, you know, probably pretty ac accurate there in the Book of Kings, but it's not something you're going to want to read or, you know, you know, you know, Renaissance, right. medieval and Renaissance painters didn't portray the, you know, you name your favorite king from the Book of Kings. They're always going back to those early stories because they're so well known and they're so engaging because they have the history and epic storytelling style. By the way, the great example of this in English is Beowulf. The earliest piece of English literature is the Beowulf poem. Date, 6th, 7th, 8th century, different debates on that. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great epic, but there are historical elements in that story, in that great epic poem, which have been confirmed by historical and archaeological sources around the North Sea in what is today um, on the continent, the Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, Sweden coast, and also uh, on the eastern uh, coast of England along the North Sea. Uh, his historians are now very pretty, you know, clear that not that there was a Beowulf and a dragon and all that, but they're pretty, they're, they're, they're almost in total agreement that this is based on historical material, but of course it's told in a very epic style. So that's a good analogy out of our own hmm. English material. Okay, so, um, you know, I'm, I can guarantee you not everyone's going to be convinced by that uh, portrayal of the Egyptian text. So, um, with the last few seconds we have here, I'm, I'd be really interested to hear just, I don't know, maybe a quick summary or go into as much detail as you want. Um, what do you think is the best evidence that the, the text is using this mix of historical and epic? So, obviously, we have some historical kernel question is what makes you so confident that it's it's supposed to be an epic not specifically well we know what literal storytelling looks like because we have royal annals from the ancient world we have annals from egyptian kings and babylonian kings and assyrian kings and eventually the biblical book of kings um and the book of exodus doesn't present like that the book of exodus is presenting this engaging narrative with an aesthetic and then this, again, I didn't mention, let's come back to it, the theological overlay, right? None of these things happen because of whimsical or random events. It's all under God's control. Uh, and there's a, you know, to answer your question directly, I can't, you know, pinpoint a specific place where I'd say, ah, that's it. It is, I come to this conclusion from a lifetime of reading and engaging with this text teaching it, sharing it with my students, looking at the Egyptian uh, motifs uh, and so on. Now, if you're asking me for something specific, well, I just referred to it. You, know, you can't have 600,000 adult males 
and their wives and children, suggesting something like two million people leaving all at once. Um, so these are the epic features uh, of the story. Uh, you know, by the way, we didn't even refer to the death of the firstborn, which also occurs, plague number 10. We also have references to that in Egyptian text, right? Um, you know, childhood illnesses are not so selective to kill only the firstborn and not the other children of the family. So um, uh, th these are, and there's a theological reason for that, right? Israel is God's firstborn. God says that, you know, Israel is my firstborn child. Um, so Israel's my firstborn. I'm going to kill your firstborn because of the way you've mistreated my firstborn. These are epic and theological overlays uh, to the biblical account or to the historical account, which creates the biblical okay, very account. Very fascinating. Mm. <laughs> okay. All right. So if you got time, very last question. Um, and this is a bit off topic, but because you're studied a lot of Egyptian stuff, I got to ask you. All right. Um, and if you don't have an answer, then that's okay. Um, Egyptian creation texts. Um, there's a lot of them. And some people have said that they contradict. Some people don't. Do you think they contradict? And do you think they're supposed no, to? No, they're not supposed to be historical. Again, how would an ancient Egyptian have viewed them? I don't know. Would an ancient Israelite have viewed Genesis 1 and 2 as historical? Or, you know, uh, maybe, probably. Uh, the, the, we have about five different creation accounts from ancient Egypt. Uh, they do contradict each other because the chief deity is different in one to the other. Uh, but, you know, some of them are just different focus. You know, one of them, perhaps clearly, the god Chnum is the creator of humanity. He creates little human beings on the potter's wheel uh, out of clay, which, of course, is exactly what you have in, X, in Genesis chapter 2. Um, and next to him, by the way, is the goddess Heket, the frog goddess, whom I mentioned, portrayed their human body with a frog head. Uh, who's breathing the symbol of life into the nostrils of the newly created human that Chnum has created on the potter's wheel. Relate that back to the biblical story. Well, there are no multiple deities in the world. What does God do in chapter two of Genesis, right? He creates man out of clay and he breathes life into his nostrils. You don't have separate deities doing these things because there's only the one deity. So in every place, there is an interaction with these uh, ancient uh myths but yeah the egyptian myth it was localized like the people of um own or heliopolis in the delta would have had their myth and the um, mm -hmm. people of memphis would have had their myth and the people of um, thebes in the south would have had their myth so you know which is fine i mean you have different different mythic traditions localized in egypt depending on which god is worshipped in your city and where his or her temple maybe in your cities as opposed to somewhere upstream or downstream on the Nile. Fascinating, fascinating, very fascinating. Okay, all right, this has been awesome, Dr. Rinsberg. I really appreciate you talking to me. Um, any last words? Uh, you already mentioned like where we can find your resources. Last words or just words of gratitude. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome, much appreciated. Thank you. I hope you have a great rest of your night.